This is a question and answer session with Joel, titled Fairness and Forgiveness, recorded July 12, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, any questions? Or if you want to still talk about meditation, let's talk about meditation. Uh, Carl's cast today talked about once about lines from the harem that got in. Talked about, I'm sorry, about what? Lines. Lines. Lines from the harem or donned in. Let's say my reference to meditation is that. Are you talking about the horror, the Japanese idea of a center? Is that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Well, again, uh, different um, traditions have different uh, psycho-spiritual anatomies, you might say. Hara is a Japanese one. I don't know much about it, but that's a center. Uh, I believe it's located in the, in the stomach. Uh, other traditions have the center located in the heart or different chakras or different points. There certainly is a connection between uh, the subtle and the gross realm through the body. There's uh, no question about it. Uh, and in fact, you can even see quite objective physical manifestations of this in things like um, acupuncture. But each tradition has their own map. Did you see what I mean? Yeah. And then that map is something that is, it doesn't mean that this is what ultimate reality is. That means this is something useful that you can go apply in your own practice. So if you take, for instance, the map that I'm more familiar with, which is the Tibetan map, there are chakras and there are uh, lines of what they're called channels that, uh, where the energy is channeled through and so forth. It's very interesting. In the, in the Tibetan tradition, it's very clear that these are imaginary. The, the Tibetans knew an awful lot about uh, corpses because one of the ways they buried their dead was to butcher the corpse and take the flesh off and get down to the bones. This comes from ancient shamanic traditions, you know. They knew very well you cut somebody open, you're not going to find some the central channel and be able to pick it out, you know what I mean, and find these little chakra points. And they know that the whole work is imaginary. Now, when Westerners hear that, we say, well, if it's imaginary, I mean, it's not real. What's the point of it? But from a Tibetan tradition, it's imaginary like everything else. And in fact, in a certain sense, it's it's more real than other forms of imagination, like imagining gross things, like imagining there's a pillow there. So uh, imaginary is not a, a no-no word in Tibetan tradition. It's just a recognition of reality. Um, so the the uh, what's important here is not trying to find out which is real, in any sort of gross physical sense. Do you see what I mean? The important thing is which works the best. Yeah, apply it to yourself. That right. is like an ongoing technique. Exactly. Which works the best for yourself. And then you even could uh, possibly make a, um, a scientific investigation of which works the best for large numbers of people. The way you would for medicine, do you know? Most of the medicines on the market today, you can't say... This works for everybody. Some people have adverse reactions. Some people have severe adverse reactions. You can only say this works for 75% of people who take this medicine. And for the other 25%, they have some ill side effects, and 3% have serious ill side effects. You can make those probabilistic sorts of predictions, you know. Um, 
So uh, when you uh, don't be confused about, you know, reading about a Japanese way or if it's Carlos Castaneda, or, you know, they have different schemes, different maps. And at this point in our knowledge, we don't have a single synthesized map. We may have this 100 years from now if people really get interested in uh, this sort of work. It won't be based, though, on the physical anatomy. It'll be based on the spiritual function and the, um, uh, the principles involved in that spiritual function and finding out which are the most efficient ways of doing it. You see what I mean? Yeah, but to be like you go to a center or to a point, you have applications to get into that or techniques to get into that. Sit in, uh, in a lowest position to meditate. A certain uh, technique of med- meditation maybe a certain application of dive for, say, individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all deals with uh, involvement with life itself, participation with life. It does. and the, But the techniques are all designed for one, if, if it's a mystical tradition, for one thing and one thing only. And that's to put you in a space or a place or a mental state or, or a, a state of consciousness, if you like, where it is easiest to see the nature of reality. Not the, the, the purpose is not the state itself. The purpose is not uh, to circulate energy because it feels good or because you can be more effective on your job. These might be side effects of it, which are very beneficial, but they are not the ultimate goal. It depends upon your nature, your relationship to nature of reality. Too. Well, this is what you're trying to discover from a, from a mystical point of view, you see. From a mystical point of view, you don't presume to know the, 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 uh, your relationship to reality, the nature of your relationship to reality. Yeah, to me, then life would stop, and life doesn't stop in that sense. It's always ongoing. Certainly. It's like a mystery story, do you see? It's ongoing because there's a mystery. Yeah, it's like, to me, like energy always changes. It does. But, but the, the difference is, if you start with an answer, you know what reality is about, and then you try to use all these techniques to, um, to benefit yourself or to you know, uh, yeah. make things work yeah, in a I certain think. way, yeah. you're missing the mystical point. You may have applications for this in medicine or whatnot, just so you set more limited goals. But from the mystical point of view, the whole question is you don't know what reality is about. And these techniques are to help you see for yourself what reality is about. That's the diff- this is yeah, what I makes these that. techniques uh, the difference when they're used in a mystical tradition as when they're as opposed to when they're used in a therapeutic tradition. And th- I'm not against them being used in a therapeutic tradition, but in a in the from a mystic's point of view, that's a relative goal that may be very helpful. It's hard to do good meditation if you have a lot of physical pain. If you can use uh, a technique yeah, like meditation is, to alleviate physical pain, that helps. Buy one thing off from another thing, another therapeutic from the mystical goal, because they both relate in a sense. I think all things relate, all things have a relationship to each other. Certainly. But it's the priority. It's the hierarchy. This is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. He didn't say, don't eat or drink. He, he was a great eater and drinker, you know? They accused him of being a glutton and a, and a drunkard. Yeah. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God. It is, it's very important uh, in terms of thinking about your life. If everything's relative, then you have no way of 
making priorities. If everything's relative in the sense that there's no absolute against which things are relative. When you have a, when you can sense or intuit an absolute, this is what you're trying to find out what it is, then what's relative is relative uh, in relation to that. Then you can prioritize values in your life. If everything is just completely relative in the sense that there is no, uh, no fixed point here, then one thing's as good as another. You that's can't make why, any decision. That's why it was important to define the kingdom of God, so you would have applied application of techniques to achieve the kingdom of God. A goal. Did you say a goal? Uh, application to achieve the uh, the kingdom of God itself. What is materials, materials are written? You know. That's a very good way of putting it, actually, Petrol. And this is partly an answer to your question. What is the goal? Why are you working with subtle energies? Ask yourself that first. And then, you know, then things will start to fall into place. It's important in just, not just spiritual life, but in, in all of life to prioritize your goals. This is why people in this culture, for instance, are often so confused. Um, they don't know what's really important for themselves. And often the goals, they never really thought about it. They just assumed the culture's goals. You know what I mean? And they operate in their life without them actually ever really thinking about it or pondering or saying, gee, does really, do I want to spend my life making money? You know, they just fall into that because this is what is communicated on television and through the newspapers and the media, you know, it's very important to take stock of your life and, and then prioritize. This is, uh, you know, how you organize your time. Otherwise your days will just drift around, you know, they'll just be, uh, whatever stimulus is coming in, you'll be responding to all this stimulus. So it's not just, uh, it is actually a spiritual principle, but this is an example of how a spiritual principle, uh, can then be applied at every level of life, all the way out to your most practical aspects of your life. Yeah, I was reading, um, rereading a Tibetan book and it said, uh, when you start on meditating, you have to not take on any projects, or you know, or only take on very few, so you can focus all your energy. Simplifying your life is very important in the beginning of a spiritual path, because from a practical point of view, you have to make time for your spiritual life, for your meditation, your practices. You know, and in our culture, particularly, there's so much competition for your time. So just uh, one of the best things you can do when you decide to start a spiritual path is look over your life and simplify it. Get rid of extraneous stuff. Uh, one of the things that I ask people to do before they join our Wednesday night practitioners group is to uh, make a kind of an hour-by-hour diary of how they spend an average week. And after the end, you try that. It's very interesting because you just go ahead and do it as you're going along, and then you look at it. And you can, you know, add up the amount of time you're spending sleeping, eating, watching television, you know, and you get a very immediate map of where your energy is going, your time is going. It's like making a household budget. You want to see where your money's going? Keep track of all your expenses, right? Add them all up and you look and you say, gee, I've been spending, uh, you know, 50 bucks a week on, on malteds. I mean, let's cut that out, you know? And people are sometimes just surprised how much time out of a week you're spending, what proportion of time you're watching television, for instance. In this culture, if people added up their time, you'd see an extraordinary amount of time. Mm -hmm. 
And then this helps you see this is very practical. Where are you going to find the time to meditate? Well, right there, you, you know, you probably have eight hours in a week at least, if not more. I mean, not, not you personally, but most people in this culture. There's plenty of time to meditate. But you, have, you do have to give something up. You have to simplify. You have to make a sacrifice. But then you can be mindful while you're doing stuff, too. Isn't that a form of meditation? It certainly is. And if you can be perfectly mindful without <clears throat> bothering to go through formal meditation, don't go through formal meditation. Make sure that you're really perfectly mindful. The whole This is the point about formal meditation. It's a training in order to be mindful. See, you could look at the whole spiritual path from a mystical point of view this way. There's one instruction. There's just one instruction. Realize reality. Realize the true nature of things. Realize God. Realize who you really are. That's the only really ins real instruction. And then people say, well, but how? And then the techniques start coming in uh, uh, to help you do just that, right? So somebody says, I'm sitting here, I don't realize. What's the problem? Well, one of the problems is that you're seeing the world through a, uh, an imaginary kaleidoscope of thought that's breaking the world up into all these things. So how are you going to subdue thought? Well, you try to walk through life and not think about things, or at least not have the thought at the center of your focus. You're not looking through the lens of thought. You find that's very difficult to do. Okay, why don't you try this? Take some other object other than thought, like your breath, and focus on that. You see what I mean? Do you see what I'm, how I'm saying? The, the, the one instruction is so vast and broad, and when you actually try to carry it out, you've, the other uh, instructions are uh, come into play to help you do that, and they get more and more specific. But they're related to exactly the trouble you're having. So if your mind is very busy meditating on the breath or some object, a mantra, helps to calm the mind. So that now you can go out and walk through life without seeing it all through, just through this lens of thought. So that you can get back to the real instruction, if you like. Do you see what I mean? Uh, another example of this would be a um, more practical kind of thing is, let's say um, you wanted to be a runner. You wanted to run, uh, you know, the four-minute mile. And uh, you get out there and you start to run. And the first thing you realize is your ankles are very weak. So before you uh, keep running, you have to go and work out some special exercises to strengthen your ankles. And then you go back to running. You see? Then you uh, find out, I don't know, you're getting winded very quickly. So you realize, oh, that's because I'm smoking. So now you have to give up smoking. These things aren't directly, what does working on your ankles have to do with running a four-minute mile? It's not directly related to, but you have to have strong ankles in order to be able to run, and you have to be able to run if you're going to run a four-minute mile. This is how all the techniques and practices, meditation and everything else, fit into a spiritual path.
Well, speaking of going from the general to the more specific, I'm going to ask a more specific question, I think. Um, one of the main practices on the path seems to be the practice of selflessness, and our discussion Wednesday night was very good as far as how that relates to uh, money and stuff like that. I'm, I'm curious about the issue of fairness, an attachment to fairness. I think it's the Dhammapada that says, you know, he cheated me, he abused me, so on. This is the source of suffering. This thought is the source of suffering. And in my own life, I find a, a real attachment and suffering to the idea of fairness and when it doesn't feel like something's fair. What can you tell me about dealing with that uh, from a spiritual perspective? I'll just repeat what the Dhammapada says. Uh, I'm not getting it exactly right, but it's something like, he who cherishes or cultivates thoughts like, he abused me, he mistreated me, uh, he did me wrong, uh, suffers. And then it's very interesting, it says, he who releases thoughts like, he abused me, he mistreated me, he did me wrong, tends towards happiness. Now, the key word there is release. This goes back to what we were saying before. Before you can release a thought like, I've been abused, I've been mistreated, you have to recognize that you are having this thought. So you have to be very mindful and attentive. Because most of the lives we go through, and we get into a situation where we're treated unfairly, and we're not really mindful of what's going on in our minds. These thoughts are running through our minds. They're clouding our mood. Do you know what I mean? They're causing the suffering, but we're only half aware of it. So if you take a teaching like that, then you want to try it out, see if it works. And you become very mindful. And then when you, the next time you are in a situation where you feel like you've been abused or mistreated or done wrong, notice very specifically the thoughts there. Well, so-and-so is... Uh, you know, the, the banks cheated me and they're asking too much interest. Or You know, you see what I mean? Notice that this is actually a thought. Watch that thought. Now, then ask yourself, am I cherishing it? Am I cultivating it? Am I, uh, you know, cranking up the record? Okay, you see that. Then what would it mean to release it? To let it go. The thought arises, the Dhammapada doesn't say, uh, don't let the thought arise. The difference isn't whether the thought arises or not. The difference is, are you attached to it? Are you clinging to it? Are you owning it? Are you saying, yes, I have a right to feel this way? Or are you releasing it? Are you letting it arise and then instead of cultivating it, you just let it pass away like all thoughts do? So this is the practice. And then you see when you let it go, you see that you feel happier. You prove it by your own experience. I've experienced that, and that's very true, what you say. Uh, to take the question a little bit more specific, uh, in an ongoing situation or relationship, uh, do the spiritual teachings say, I have a hard time believing it, they would say to be a doormat, so to speak, and so to release all unfairness, but isn't there... A, some skillful means of I mean, okay. justice is... Mm, very good. Notice that the thought is, that very specifically in the Dhammapada, the thought that causes suffering is that uh, he abused me, he mistreated me, 
he done me wrong. That's the, the, if you really look at it, it's the me, the I in there that you're hanging on to. And that's what's causing the suffering. Now, uh, you can uphold the justice in the name of justice, not for yourself. And I'll give you a very good example of this. Uh, true story. Spinoza was a, uh, a very mystical uh, Jewish philosopher, or he was, came from a Jewish background in the, I don't know, 16th century, 17th century. Uh, he was, as a young man, developing his philosophy, and it was very unorthodox. And he lived in this Jewish ghetto in uh, Holland, I think it was. And his own community was very upset with his teachings and his writings and so forth. And he had a lot of conflict with them, and they finally disowned him. And in the process, his parents died, and they left him a substantial amount of money, inheritance, as well as, I think it was his daughter, uh, his sister. And there may have been some other relatives there. And his sister wanted all the money. She took it all, and she wouldn't give him any. And so he sued her. He took her to court. And he won. And he won, and then he gave her his half of the inheritance. Now, why did he bother to go through all that? He didn't want the money to begin with. But he wanted to uphold the principle of justice. It wasn't for himself. Do you see what I mean? He didn't actually gain anything out of it. But he thought it was very important that justice be done. The, the key in here is there's no suffering if there's no, uh, if it's not done for selfish reasons. The outcome doesn't matter to him. If the, uh, if the court had decided against him, he tried to uphold justice. You see what I mean? He doesn't have any, personal attachment to the reward of his action. The action is for the universe. It's for all people. So when you talk about upholding justice, you have to be, up, it's, uh, there's an old saying, virtue is its own reward. You're doing it not so I can get justice. You're doing it so that justice will prevail in the world. So if you lose a round, you've lost a round. It's, you haven't lost a round. You see what I mean? A round has been lost. But you've done the best that you could. And that's all that's ever required of you. In a selfless way. Gandhi's a very good exemplar for this. Uh, you know, Gandhi's whole life was about justice. About uh, upholding justice or, or getting justice. But it wasn't because he didn't approach it from the idea, I've been abused, I've been mistreated. Do you see what I mean? He even was so, um, so wise about it that he realized that justice, the upholding of justice would be beneficial for his enemies, for those who are abusing, the abusers, that they could never be really free unless there was justice. Same with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So you're not upholding justice for uh, my, my rights against somebody else's rights. You're upholding justice for the benefit of everyone.
These sound like highfalutin, you know, ideas and stuff. <clears throat> but it really does come down to the this this whole thing about your own personal attitude about it. It's not a question of philosophy of justice. But when you're involved in a situation uh, where there is an injustice going on, that's the time you want to be very, very mindful. What is your motive in this? You know, are you seeking justice selfishly or selflessly? If you seek it selfishly, and even if you win it, it won't make you happy. It'll make you temporarily happy. You'll feel like you want to... I want a victory, and it'll, it won't last long at all, and you'll be constantly battling. If you're doing it selflessly, there's nothing in, in, at stake in it for you personally. You can't be made unhappy. Either way it goes. That's not what your happiness depends on. The happiness comes out of, before you've even done it, the, the very fact that you're acting selflessly. So you're already happy. The most important thing I think here from a practical point of view is to really take the Dhammapada literally and watch very carefully those thoughts when you feel uh, you've been done wrong. And then practice releasing them. You know, it's a practice. It takes time. It's like old broken record. Come back and come back and come back, you know. The more you release them, the more you let them go. They may still come back, but they'll be less and less binding. Instead of having this feeling that, you know, uh, this cramped feeling, you'll recognize these thoughts as a habit energy from the past, running through your brain, out they go. And then you decide what you're going to do about it. If it's appropriate to do something or not, or whatever. But it's not based on that thought, that angry, resentful, bitter thought, you see. What about the unfairness in the world? I mean, if you're listen to the news every day, or, or I, mean, I try not to listen to it, <laughs> you know, the Haitians being sent back, the terrible situation in Somali, and, I mean, this, and then I think to myself, well, I remember when I was a kid, this kind of stuff just goes on and on, and, and uh, there's nothing really I can do personally, but I still have this, uh, well, even in this country, you know, the, the way the past uh, 12 years, I think we've lost so much in this country. And there's, whenever I hear this stuff, it's just this anger that these kinds of, you know, it's like evil is winning, and I uh, take it personally as well as feeling, you know, I mean, I'm not starving, but when I, I it's this uh, pain, you know, and get caught up in that, and it's kind of hard to let that go. Well, you see uh, in your own experience that you get caught up in the pain. You get angry, and then you it's painful. Because it's painful to be in that state of sort of chronic anger, do you know? Mm -hmm. And you can also see from your own experience that uh, your relief from this pain isn't going to happen because the world changes. Because the world isn't going to change overnight. It's not going to, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and, and uh, turn on the news, and they're going to say, well, uh, they declared peace over the globe, and all the wealthy nations are now going to send their food to all the poor nations. Do you know what I mean? That just isn't going to happen. So the question is, uh, then, if this pain and suffering really is dependent on the world being a rotten place, then if the world really is a rotten place, then you're stuck with it. There's nothing you can do about it. But maybe it's not. Maybe it has something to do with your attitude about the world. And if that's the case, then there is something you can do about it. 
Now, uh, in terms of the unfairness and injustice in the world, uh, you listen to the news and you think, I can't do anything about it. But you can. Everybody in their life, in their dealings moment to moment with the people around them, and even if you're a hermit living off in the woods with the animals around you, in the trees and plants, there's either justice or injustice in those relationships. It's not that if you set out with the idea, I can't change the world as though you could wave a magic wand and, and change it. That's true. You can't. But then if you do nothing, or if you just wallow in, in the pain and the anger of it, uh, uh, you're stuck. But if you start, if you make those steps, uh, the immediate thing is will happen is you'll be freed from the anger and the pain. And this is, this happens. This radiates out, you know? If you're not acting out of anger and pain, then somebody isn't responding to you out of anger and pain. And if they're not responding to you out of anger and pain, that's one little link more that's broken. Do you know? But uh, I don't know. I, th I think there's, um, with everyone, isn't there some sort of guilt when you're uh, personally fairly well off and you know that um, there's so much uh, need in the world and so much... Uh, well, mean, there has to be some kind of... Uh, guilt? I, I know what you're saying, the grassroots thing, do what you can right nearby, but... Um, but wait a minute, I, I want to make this clear. I'm not saying it as a strategy a strategy to change the world. I'm saying it as a personal spiritual practice. And what you learn from the personal spiritual practice is that the way suffering ends is not through some grand political or social strategy. The only way suffering can end is through spiritual practice. You put an end to your suffering. And so you've, if you like, in a relative sense, you've eliminated some suffering from the world. And then because you've put an end to your suffering, you don't cause suffering in other people. So the extent that you cease to cause suffering to other people, you put an end to their suffering. There's a wonderful line in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, don't be afraid of the world and don't cause others to be afraid of you. It's a, it's a delusion to think that you can put an end to suffering through just purely social and political action. And so naturally, people involved in social political action are very frustrated. It doesn't work. And it makes them angrier and bitter and more bitter. Social and political action can be auxiliaries to spiritual practice. This again, was what we were talking about earlier. Where's the priority? Where's, you're putting the cart before the horse. It, uh, so you can really discover the secret of suffering and how to end it in your own experience. Then you're in a position to start teaching others. No, never be in that position. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know? Well, I have a lot of doubt. That's that's very healthy. But if you don't At least doubt doubt that uh, doubt that statement. That's an awful, absolute sort of statement to make. I'll never be in that position. If you have a lot of doubt, use your doubt. Be skeptical of that sort of pessimism. 
Maybe you won't, maybe you will, but why, why take the, this absolute attitude in the beginning? See for yourself, try it. Doubt's a double-edged sword, you know. Doubt is very healthy on a spiritual path, as long as you use it to undercut any sort of presumption that you hold absolutely cling to. It's very destructive if you use it just to, as an excuse, not to do practices, not to try anything, do you know what I mean? If you come from a cynical point of view, and you hold on to your cynicism and you use doubt to dismiss everything else. If you really, uh, uh, if you really have honest uh, doubt and skepticism, turn it on yourself. Doubt your own cynicism. You know, doubt your own position. <laughs> As you've been talking about this, the term forgiveness comes to mind. It somehow seems related to letting go of the need to get justice for something that's done. Could you talk a little bit in that direction? Just uh, how do you forgive? This is very interesting because this is exactly the same teaching as the Dhammapada. This is Jesus's version of that teaching, the Dhammapada. Forgive your enemies. Forgive your transgressors. It's right in the Lord's Prayer, which is the only prayer Jesus ever taught. You know, people bugged him to, to what should we pray? And he wasn't all that enthusiastic about prayer, but he said, well, if you got to have a prayer, here's, try this one, you know? And that's the heart of it, you know? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is the exact same thing as the Dhammapada, you see? Forgiveness is releasing this anger, this bitterness that you've been done wrong. The, the advantage of the Dhammapada is uh, two advantages. First of all, it's a little bit more exotic, so it's not something we've grown up with and has become a cliche running around in our head. And it's also a little bit more specific. And the, uh, the Buddha tells you uh, more closely what he means by this. And it's a big mystery for, for people who haven't stumbled on the trick of forgiveness. People who have stumbled on the trick of forgiveness, you know, go around and they tell everybody how wonderful it is. Forgive, it makes you feel great. And the rest of us look and say, yeah, but how do you do it? But this is the thing. Become very mindful. When you're being, when you are, uh, being unforgiving. And you will notice this, not just sort of a general, vague sort of thing, do you know? You'll see it in your thoughts as they're cranking away. About your parents, your ex-spouse, your, you know, whatever it is. Your boss. And you say, oh, this is not being very forgiving. What would happen if I just let this go? No, not, not pushing it down, not feeling bad, not feeling guilty, not beating up on yourself because these thoughts are arising. That's claiming the thoughts as though you could do something about it. But just seeing these thoughts is just, just habit energy. You stop identifying with them. You step back a little bit, let them come and let them, the letting them go is the forgiveness. And you feel better. You feel lighter. You feel more joyous. You'll feel freer. People can't uh, uh, hurt you, not because you become invulnerable and have a fortress. You're less vulnerable to, to, to pain because the pain goes through. It's got no place to stick. I've said it before. It's like an arrow. If there's a target, the self, then the arrow has something to stick in. When the self becomes more transparent, more fluid, the arrow tends to pass through. When the self is completely gone, the arrow has no place to find a, a rest in. 
just passes through. So it's not making people stop shooting arrows at you. It's depriving them of a target. It's this, uh, the teaching of forgiveness is so central to Christianity, and it's exactly the same teaching as the as in the Dhammapada. It's exactly the same teaching. And the the thing is, you have to, you really have to practice it in detail. You have to start practicing in detail in the moment of your life when you resent the rudeness of the store clerk. That's the place to start practicing forgiveness. People like to wait until there's, or they look at some big thing in their life. Do you know what I mean? Some whole complex of pain and suffering. And they wonder, well, how am I ever going to deal with that? Well, you know, you, you're not going to run the four minute mile until you can run down the block. You know, start practicing running down the block. Eventually, maybe you'll be able to run the four minute mile. Don't, but don't worry about that for now. You know, can you run from here to the kitchen? All right, you can run from here to the kitchen. Maybe you can run from here to across the street, you know? It's really, you know, it's in the... And, and this is where you see uh, that the practice works in the little detail of it. When you're, you know, driving home from the store and you see your mind clinging and cherishing those thoughts that, you know, oh, that clerk was rude to me and insulted me. And I, you know what I mean? And you say, wait a minute. Am I doing what the Buddha said? No wonder I'm suffering here. Is this true? I've released these thoughts, you know. I forgive that person. That person knows not what they do. Isn't that also where the mindfulness comes in? You're mindful of that, and then you start being mindful of the way the sunlight hits the leaves and the way the breeze is blowing, and there it goes. Sure. You know, we look, we all know how... Uh, attention works from meditating and how it gets trapped and wrapped up in things well if your attention is totally absorbed by your uh, replaying uh, you know an instant replay in your mind over and over again tapes about how you were abused and hurt uh, how can you have any beauty and joy it's almost a mechanical kind of thing you know you have to re free up that energy as we talked about before if you like the energy of attention you know, you have to detach it. You have to get it free. Then it's open. Then it becomes spacious and open. And all this stuff is there. It's not that you're generating joy. It's, it's there to be had. The, the, the world is strewn with rubies and gold to be uh, just be picked up. It's all free. But we don't see it, so we don't pick it up. I find it easier to let go of it when... Um when it comes from the energy of the person, uh, or, well, I guess I mean to say that if there's no truth to it, um, whereas if there's a truth to their, say if it's a heavier criticism than they need to put upon me, um, if there's truth in it, even if it's presented poorly or harshly, then it's really difficult because they're kind of like pushing your buttons. Um, and, and yet they're doing you a favor, at least they're giving you feedback. Oh, okay, now you're talking about criticism. That's a specific form of, you know, we, yes, you're right, this is more complicated, but this is exactly the attitude to take. If you're talking about the suffering that, that arises from having yourself criticized, mm -hmm. the truer it is, the more suffering you're going to have mm -hmm. if you're hanging on to an image of yourself that's false. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? 
So it's still a question of the problem here is your attachment. It's more subtle here because it's an attachment to an image. You want to think of yourself as a very kind person. And someone points out how what a selfish bastard you are. And so you get very resentful. Now, what is the problem? Is the problem that they are being heavy-handed in their criticism? Does the problem come from them at all? No. The problem comes from you're holding on to an image of yourself that isn't true. If you let go of the image, a lot of the suffering right away uh, dissipates. Your attitude changes completely. And this is why in Tibetan Buddhism, they say your enemy is your greatest guru. Your enemy is the one who teaches you all the virtues, patience, compassion, forgiveness. You see what I mean? Your friends don't teach you those virtues. You don't get a chance to practice them on your friends. This is why Jesus said, I teach you to love even your enemies. Because what does it profit you to love your friends? Loving your friends is a good thing, but you don't learn nearly as much from the practice of loving your friends as you do from the practice of loving your enemies. That's what you learn from, you see. So, uh, in, in the specific case of criticism, yes, you know, if you can just become a little detached from those images, then you can see the criticism as being valuable. Once you can see the criticism as being valuable, you can make a less deluded decision about what in the criticism is valuable and what isn't. If you don't have any image to protect, part of a criticism may be completely off. Do you know what I mean? But you don't have to respond to it as an attack. You can just say, well, uh, you know, at least from what I can see now, yes, what you say, I can uh, see that. That's true. Let me accept that. The other part, I don't see it right now. You don't have to say you're wrong, you're hurtful. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe it is true and you'll see it later that it was true. And maybe it's just coming from the, that person's pain and suffering. Maybe they're just using it as a way of attack. Mm-hmm. But that's irrelevant to you. you the, the wisdom you're going to get out of it is what you can see uh, mirrored honestly and truthfully about yourself in that criticism. Even if they didn't mean it for that reason. Even if they meant it to be hurtful. Mm-hmm. You see, even if they didn't mean it to help you at all. You can still learn. You can still benefit. This is the beauty of a spiritual path. It doesn't depend on other people's intentions. Every situation you can learn from. Every situation can be enriching to you, no matter what the people in the situation, uh, uh, what their intent is. Then your happiness less and less depends on the condition of the world. Then turn on the news. Yes, it's terrible in the news. Yes, there's tremendous suffering. It doesn't have to call forth guilt or anger. And anything, uh, action that you take motivated by guilt and anger is going to produce more suffering. Because guilt and anger are forms of suffering. It could, for instance, call forth compassion and love. Or it could call forth gratitude. Now, if you act out of gratitude or compassion, you're still acting. I'm not saying don't act, the world's going to the dogs, there's nothing you can do. Do you see what I mean? But if you start acting out of gratitude and compassion, that action is going to alleviate suffering. If you're acting out of anger and guilt, 
I guarantee it, you're going to create more suffering. Okay, shall we bring the morning to a close? We have uh, today hot tea, I mean hot water.